Good morning, afternoon or evening everybody and welcome to the penultimate episode of Season 3 of Pangolin, the Conservation Podcast. The show dedicated to amplifying the amazing, exciting, wonderful, incredible, inspiring stories that inspire me and I hope will inspire you too. As I've said, today is our penultimate episode of Season 3, which means it's the second last time we are going to be venturing through the land of the lemurs. This season we've been talking all about Madagascar and the incredible initiatives and animals and plants and people of the country. It's just been a fantastic, fantastic ride. And as we reach the end, we have one more new charity to introduce. We have Conservation Fusion. Now, Susie Lewis, their director, is here to tell us all about that today. And her expertise is in education, empowering communities in Madagascar, and building bridges between schools in the USA and in Madagascar. So it's a really interesting conversation, all about kind of, yes, education and inspiration. And yeah, another really, really great one. I'm running out of positive descriptors because everyone has just been so kind and so amazing this season. And and Susie's interview is is no different. It's 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 excellent. Now, beyond her expertise, some more specific things we get into that might interest you. Uh, if you haven't heard of the Disney Conservation Fund, we talk a lot about how they are supporting conservation fusion, which is quite interesting. It's a fund that I didn't really know existed until uh, quite recently when the new Lion King came out. They they did a bit of advertising around then and that's when I kind of started to recognize and appreciate it. So we talk about the, the Disney Conservation Fund. We also talk about, yes, conservation fusions work and of course some species that we haven't covered in much detail before. So because her focus is on education, Susie gives us a brief rundown and some fun facts of species such as ring-tailed lemurs, radiated tortoises and sifakas. And yes, it's just it's fantastic and really, really interesting. And I hope you will all learn something something new while you're while you're enjoying the, the chat. I will, of course, disappear now and get on with the interview. So all that remains, I guess, for just now is to say thank you so much for listening to the series. I hope you've enjoyed everything so far. And if you have, make sure to click on to subscribe to the series so you don't miss out on any future content. And you can follow us on social media at Pangolin Podcast as well. And yeah, of course, thank you so, so much for joining us as we explore the land of the lemurs. Thank you so, so much. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. I am now joined by Susie Lewis, the Director of Conservation Fusion. Her expertise is in education, empowering communities in Madagascar, and building bridges between schools and communities in the USA and in Madagascar. And she's here to tell us all about that today. So thank you very much for joining me today, Susie. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wondered just to get us started, I wondered if you could introduce yourself to the listeners and just tell them just a little bit about your background. Sure, my pleasure. Um, again, my name's Susie Lewis, and I'm the director of Conservation Fusion. Um, we're a, an international nonprofit organization focused on education. And a little bit about myself is, um, gosh, I've always enjoyed working with animals and had a 
a real love for the environment and nature. And my background is that I have a degree in biology and I'm a former zookeeper. I worked at the the zoo in Omaha for many years, for 13 years. Um, I spent some time working as a zookeeper, but the last like seven to eight years that I was there, um, I worked in the Center for Conservation and Research in the Molecular Genetics Lab. Um, so that's how I kind of really got into working with lemurs and also a, a wide range of animals from around the world. That's that's really interesting, actually. And it's an interesting kind of it'll be good for people to know kind of where you started and how you built up to where you are are now. Um, mm -hmm. And what I actually the first kind of thing that jumps into my head then is your organization is kind of focused around education. So mm -hmm. what made you want to jump from doing the molecular, really scientific science lab based, I guess, work to jumping into the the education realm? What what made you interested in that part of conservation? Sure. So like I mentioned, we were working, when I was working in the genetics lab, we were working with, with projects all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we had kind of a, a large focus on, on species from Madagascar. So we had Malagasy students. Um, we would we would actually collect samples, uh, would help them collect samples in the field in Madagascar, and then they would come to the U.S. and work with us in the lab. And as I was working with all these scientists from all around the world, uh, we could look at so many different things using molecular data. We could see population structure, new new species, rivers and roads as barriers. We could learn all these different things about lemur populations and other wildlife populations. However, it just felt like if we really wanted to save endangered species, it's all about community-based education. Because even if we have all this data, if there's nowhere for these animals and plants to exist anymore, then essentially they'll become extinct. So if we really wanted to conserve these species for the future, um, I felt like it was really all about community-based education. And at the time, uh, no one was really doing that in, in Madagascar. So that's what kind of inspired me to start Conservation Fusion. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. And can you tell us now that you have that leads on perfectly to my next question, which was going to be, can you tell us a little bit about Conservation Fusion? So that's sure. kind of where it was born and how did it kind of huh? develop from there? And yes, could you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. Um, so we're an international uh, organization. Education is our, our mission is actually educating to build and strengthen our world. Uh, we have a huge focus, our focus really is on the island of Madagascar right now. Um, however, we're all about connecting people. Everything we do is conservation, education, and collaboration. So uh, we are working with communities in Madagascar, but also right here in the United States. And we partner with all kinds of different organizations from universities to grade schools to after school programs um, to zoos and aquariums and uh, we have so many different partnerships and I think that kind of ties back into that original question of like what inspired me to start Conservation Fusion and part of the inspiration was just to 
model, create a model for other conservation organizations about collaboration. Uh, because especially in scientific, the scientific side, like conservation and research, there's a lot of competition, which actually is good because that's always pushing people to, to be their best. However, um, I really felt strongly that there were so many conservation organizations almost like competing for maybe the same dollars or for ownership of projects. And I just felt like we could start an organization that actually created win-win opportunities for everyone in involved. That's, yes, I think that's the, the perfect approach going forward as well, is that if we want to, these issues, while some of them are very local and some of them are very kind of situated in, in one place, a lot of conservation issues are obviously global things that we have to all kind of work on together to solve mm -hmm. um, and kind of help one another out. So it's the perfect strategy going forward to, to do this kind of format of organization is, is really interesting. I just, yeah, there's so much that we've talked about already that I, I wanted to ask about. And I guess before we get dive a little bit deeper into your, your organization, there's one thing that I want to ask before we, we jump forward, which was just going back to when you mentioned you were working in a lab and that's how you got up to this point. I wondered if you could tell us perhaps what is the what is what were some of your favorite projects that you worked on pre-conservation fusion what were kind of the the standouts okay. for you sure well i had so many amazing opportunities working at the lab um we worked on so many different projects i worked on concert giraffe conservation elephants uh, philippine crocodiles hellbenders all kinds of different wildlife but i had the opportunity to actually visit the island of Madagascar because that's where we had a huge focus on. And so I really loved working with the, the lemurs. Um, my favorite was probably the II. Um, we also um, named many new species of lemurs. It wasn't me personally, it was a, like the whole team um, under the direction of actually my husband, Dr. Ed Lewis. And he spearheaded the, the Madagascar Biodiversity Pro partnership, which is a Malagasy NGO that we partner with. And also they are doing the the brunt of the conservation research in Madagascar. So there was they've named 23 new species of lemurs in Madagascar, along with a bunch of several reptiles and even new plant species from the lab in Omaha. So it was really exciting to be um, be there during the time that there was all this like groundbreaking work happening coming out of the conservation genetics lab. And from the time that I started to the time that I left, they also kind of changed a lot of their focus from being just only research to also incorporating a lot of uh, permanent sites in Madagascar where they could really engaged the local community and they started a lot of community-based programs that helped the community and made conservation a tangible benefit to the local people. That's yes I, that's really really interesting again and I can see why it, when you're discovered why Madagascar would become such a love and a, such an interest when you are Every, it seems like every time you turn over a new leaf or a new rock or something, you're discovering these incredible endemic species that, mm -hmm. especially when it's one that, that no one has seen before, it must it must just be the best, most incredible feeling to, yes. to work on these things. Yeah. Yes. Um, yes. Also, just working in Madagascar, uh, 
it, it kind of just captures you. Um, it, it is really a, such a unique place with so many different ecosystems. They have dry spiny forests and they have littoral forests and the zingy rock formations and the rainforest. It's just the, the amount of diversity is just incredible. And, and there's 112 different species of lemurs on the island now. Um, when I first started, there was around 70. So um, just that huge jump in, in new species of primates is just unbelievable. Yes, it's it's amazing in a world that I think everybody thinks is getting increasingly small when connected and um, with us so able to communicate and see and have conversations like these across the world. You'd think, oh, we've discovered everything there is to discover now. But it's amazing that, the, yeah, just in the time that you've been working, it jumped up so many different species is, is incredible. Mm -hmm. And yes, you kind of um, touched on the next thing I wanted to to ask about, actually, in, in one of your previous answers, which was this idea of of working with communities within Madagascar mm -hmm. and and something that I, I read on your website and really appreciated was actually you said that our goal is not to save Madagascar we aim to provide the tools to empower the Malagasy people to find innovative solutions to help themselves and I think that's a really interesting way to to look at conservation and I just wanted to ask what are the the tools um that you want to kind of help give to the the Malagasy people to help them kind of do mm -hmm. these actions themselves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, that's kind of like the heart of everything that we're doing and is working with communities. And, you know, people always ask me, like, how will you know conservation fusion is a success? And I always say, like, if if we're able to go out of business um, because <laughs> they don't need us anymore because they're doing it themselves, like local people are, are doing it themselves. So I think one of the the main things that we do first is to really go into these communities and ask questions and really truly listen for the answers. Mm -hmm. um, I know one thing that we haven't really touched on yet is just the status of Madagascar. And, you know, people might not realize, like, it's a developing country, one of the poorest countries in the world. So most people are living there on le making an income of less than $2 a day. And over 95% of people are subsistence farmers, meaning they're just barely growing enough food for themselves with no excess. So when we go into these communities, we're really asking them, what are the needs of the community? So we, what we're, our ultimate goal is conservation. However, a lot of times they don't have a luxury of thinking about protecting the environment when they're not able to, to know if they can eat that day. So when we ask them these questions, we really listen to the to, to the needs of the community. So a lot of times they'll say, um, you know, we're we need we need employment, we need skills, we need um, health care, all of those things. So some of the things that we do are to um, teach work. We do we host workshops and educational programs that teach people how to, for example, create and build fuel efficient rocket stoves. And so it took a long time and we worked together with um, engineers and we worked together with even high school students here in the US and um, even the the university MIT um, to improve these rocket stoves and make them 
so that people in Madagascar could build them in an affordable way with local materials and even sell them. So these rocket stoves have proven to be amazing because it re it creates a more healthy environment for people that use them. It reduces the amount of fuel wood that they have to collect from the forest by more than 50 percent. Um, it creates a more healthy environment because they cook on these open fires. The rocket stove reduces the amount of smoke, which which creates a more healthy environment. So they have to spend less time and less money on going to the doctor and they can spend more time on conservation. And that that is an actually helps protect the environment, but also meets the needs of the local community. Um, we we teach uh, entrepreneurship and business training with local women's organizations, um, which helps them meet that need of of an income to to send their kids to school. And in the last few years, we've really um, shifted our education programs to really be about leadership and empowering others. And we work with a lot of teachers, community leaders. Um, and we're really teaching people how to how to become local leaders and how to integrate things such as community gardens. There's one site where we work where food insecurity is huge. They 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 live in the in southern Madagascar in the dry spiny forest, so they don't have access to even water to plant crops. So it took many years, and and the gardens didn't work initially. But I think that they they only began to work when the people started to believe in themselves and um, had some self-confidence. And it ended up being the local women's association that that were successful in in the gardening process because it became their own, like they took ownership over it. So those are some of the some of the things that that we're doing um, to just help local people to help themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's 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 good that it's the kind of practical skills to go along with the kind of more I don't want to say academic, but the more kind of like the the teacher. It's not just standing lecturing somebody; it's teaching them something that's actually useful and practical mm -hmm. and can be passed yes. down from them onto other people as well. It's a it's a really interesting way of, of I keep saying interesting, but everything you say is so interesting that I'm using the same word <laughs> over and over again. I need to pull yeah. out a thesaurus and think of better words. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but that's, yes, um, I'm trying very hard not to say interesting. Fascinating. There we go. That yeah. is fascinating. And um, yes, I, I, an interesting way of something I've said to a lot of people that I've been talking to over the last kind of few days recording the podcast has been, it's really inspiring to see the, uh, the, the different creative takes on conservation because mm -hmm. i think it's a lot of people as a have have in their mind this image that conservationists are like what you used to previously do they are, spend all day kind of working in a lab and on things like that element and they don't see the kind mm -hmm. of other side the human element so it's in, it's good to hear that about your organization's experiences with that that human element as well um yes, yes. I guess on the the flip side of the equation, then you've got your your work in in Madagascar, but then you also have your work in in the U.S. And I wondered the, what you kind of do in the U.S. to kind of promote this this idea of empowering people, but without almost shifting the narrative into we need to save them. Um, if that right. makes sense, do, mm -hmm. that kind of absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Well, you know, we talk about all the time like everything's connected. So I'm always telling people, you know, what happens here 
affects what happens there and vice versa, right? So these places like Madagascar, which make up just 1%, these diverse biodiversity hotspots, make up just 1% of the Earth's surface. And so we're losing that biodiversity at a very alarming rate. And so if we can do something to protect that, we're also protecting ourselves in, in a way as humans for our planet, because those areas of high biodiversity provide us with clean air, clean water, a lot of people don't know that more than 80% of all the medicines that we know about today have come from these areas of high biodiversity. Like I said, just making up that 1% of the Earth's surface. So what we try to do is, is talk about things that we can do on a local level here um, that can help people across the globe. So I'll just give maybe an example. Um, we work a lot with um, students and on the university level all the way from like grade school middle school high school up to the university level and we do a lot of like service learning projects so for example we might um have a, a service learning day where students in the u.s help us cut out uh shapes that will be used in madagascar to maybe make lemur puppets and with these lemur puppets we talk to the students about the the role of lemurs in their daily lives. So for example, the black and white rough lemur, um, which once had a very small population in the community that we work with, um, is a major seed disperser. So when they, they're eating mainly fruit, like 95% of their diet is fruit. So when they eat those fruits, they swallow the seeds whole. And we know from our partnership uh, with the with Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership doing the research, they've had Malagasy students look at this data and they know that when they take these seeds from the forest and just try to germinate them, it's about a, at a 10% germination rate. However, if they go to the forest and collect the poop from these black and white rough lemurs, the germination rate is up to 85%. So we see that they're major seed dispersers. Um, we know about over a hundred different types of trees that they help germinate. And it makes sense to the local people in Madagascar because they depend on the forest for everything. They use the forest for, for their food, to build their homes, for their fuel wood, for medicines, uh, to clean the water. And then we make that tie back to kids in the U.S. saying, hey, Madagascar produces cocoa trees, which we get chocolate from. Um, there's a, the, a plant called the rosy periwinkle, which was used in a, a medicine for childhood leukemia. We, we all, everything's connected. So when they are cutting out these shapes to make the lemur puppet, they're also learning about how our entire world is connected and how um, important it is to protect these areas of high biodiversity. And they're also learning about ways that, that we can do things right here on a local level, such as recycle, reuse things, um, create an awareness, just educate ourselves, and then share what we've learned with others about conservation. That's really interesting. And it is this kind of interesting bridge and cycle of, it's a, it's an excellent cycle to be in of kind of this education goes, it goes both ways. It's not just mm -hmm. the, the kids are doing something useful in the US for the 
the people in Madagascar and then the story comes back and then it's a it's yeah a really po- it must be really positive reinforcement for the kids when they they get mm-hmm. to they learn and they get to see oh this is the the change and the 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 good work or the good oh. things that we can be doing yeah that's right. really interesting yeah and I I think that that it also goes like that it's really is a win-win because the kids in Madagascar sometimes we we also connect schools here in the U.S. with schools that we work with in Madagascar. So that's another really cool thing because the kids in the U.S. are are realizing like how fortunate they are to have an education because we also talk about, for example, we built a school in Madagascar. And um, when they learn like the, the children in Madagascar had to walk like 20 kilometers to get to their closest school and they didn't have a a breakfast program or lunch program and they walked with no shoes in the hot sand you know for over an hour just to get to school because education was so important to them it it makes it switches the perspective for kids here in the US where we kind of have high truancy rates and education maybe is not something that is something that we sometimes take for granted in the developed world so i think hearing those stories um, really changes this perspective and creates some gratitude for the students here in the U.S. And then on the flip side, the, the Malagasy kids are, are cannot even believe that children in the United States, you know, are interested in, in their back, in what's in their own backyard. So it makes them realize the importance of protecting those, those unique species that they, that they share a home with. I guess yes. If you if you're seeing these amazing, incredible species, the wildlife is kind of normal to you. It, it, would, it would come as a shock if somebody then turned yeah. around and said, "We don't have these. We yeah. you are the only place in the world." Yes, yeah. Absolutely. Well, that's really interesting. And yes, that's another great example of kind of this cycle of reinforcing. And yeah, it's not about making the students feeling guilty or anything like that. It's about making them realize actually you have so much that. Right. everybody else would be kind of so grateful for that, that it, yeah it then makes them take their own education more seriously I suppose which is a really good thing to reinforce and I guess something that I, I saw on your website that I wanted to ask about that kind of I think fits in, in nicely here is that you actually when in, in engaging kids I feel like there is no more powerful force in the world than Disney uh, sure. <laughs> so I when I was doing my research I was looking on your website and saw that you're the the Disney Conservation Fund which if yes if people people might not know what that is but I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about what the Disney Conservation Fund is and, and you, what happened what kind of projects they funded for you and sure. yes how did that I, I just I basically want to know how did that come about because it's such an incredible yeah. story that's yeah yeah yes we're huge fans of Disney um and we're so grateful for their support. It really means a lot. Um, and the Disney Conservation Fund actually really has a large focus on scientific research and especially community development in regards to conservation. So um, that made for a nice fit with us at Conservation Fusion. And um, we have been working with the Disney Conservation Fund for many years. So some of the things that they support, um, one of the main things that that they support is our tree planting efforts with the kids. So in Madagascar, we, we work with over 18 local schools um, at three different sites. And we are are planting trees with the kids. So I don't think I mentioned this yet that 
I did say most people in Madagascar, about 95% are subsistence farmers, but they practice a type of agriculture called slash and burn agriculture. And it's basically just burning of an area of the forest in order to plant crops. And they mainly plant rice, uh, and sometimes they have zebus in different areas. So that has been led to the destruction of more than than 80% of the original forest in Madagascar. So what we're trying to do is protect that small amount that's left and also rebuild it. So we're working together with Madagascar Biodiversity Partnership, which has a massive production level reforestation effort based on on the lemurs. So local people collect those that lemur poop, they germinate the seeds, they have more than 17 of these satellite nurseries in the villages. So Disney helps us on the education side because we're working with these school kids and talking to them about the lemur cycle and why lemurs play an important role in the ecosystem. Um, but we're also creating ownership with these these children. And so every year during the rainy season, which is in January and February, um, we have school planting events that are sponsored by Disney. And um, in fact, I want to say since 2015, um, with support from the Disney Conservation Fund, we've planted over 279,000 trees with students to restore lemur habitat and create a healthy ecosystem for local people. So that's one of the things. And the hope is that these children are not going to want to burn down a forest that they helped create. So that's one of the things that that they that they sponsor. We also um, they also sponsor our conservation camps, which is when we take the children in Madagascar into the forest for many of them to meet lemurs and for the first time. And we partner with the local lemur guides that work for the MVP. And they talk about how conservation has changed their lives by providing them with an income. They talk to the children about the life cycles of the lemurs. And they kind of are the local experts because they're monitoring these lemurs on a daily basis. So conservation camp, um, tree planting, school activities, which include art projects, and we always have a, a theme every year that we focus on. And this year, actually, we have a, a new project that incorporates um, the scientific method with, with Disney. And we're all, again, partnering with the MVP and one of their Malagasy graduate students who's working on a planting commercial crops. Um, so they're planting leche trees, cocoa trees, bamboo, um, which the people use to make baskets. And we have an eco club, which is, are these teenagers that have grown up essentially with conservation fusion over the last decade. So when they started with us, maybe they were eight years old and today they're 18. So they're kind of the grownups of the community and they're really invested in conservation. So they're the ones who are kind of spearheading this citizen science program where they're planting these commercial crops, monitoring them and learning the scientific method, um, which also gives them skills that can help them to become perhaps a research assistant for international researchers who are working um, in their village. So it, it's kind of has so many different facets that provide to a sustainable future for these communities.
in this one region. It's 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 amazing actually because I hadn't I hadn't heard of the the Disney Conservation Fund until okay. it was when the until when was, it was quite recent. It was when the new Lion King when they did the okay. CGI Lion King came out and they did a lot of work with the kind of promoting lion conservation. And I thought how how do more people not know about this and the work that yeah. they do? Um, because it, it, they seem to do quite a lot of, but it doesn't seem to get the most publicity. So it was interesting when oh. I found on your website there was that link, and I, I wanted to hear the kind of yeah the yes. story of how they, they were working with you. And it's mm-hmm. it's an interesting it is an interesting story, and it's a mm-hmm. and a great approach again I think to take is this not just teaching five year olds and then letting them go off and do whatever. It's supporting as you, the the kids who've been with you for a decade and kind mm-hmm. of really embedding this love of nature and conservation and their wildlife in them and kind of helping them um, along the, the journey, not just at one point on in the journey of kind of supporting the whole the whole thing. Yes. Um, yes. So it's a, a, a great approach. And yes, it must be incredibly satisfying, I suppose, to especially when you've been working with these people for a, a, a decade. It must be an incredibly satisfying thing for yes. you to do as well. Yes. Yes. I mean, it, it's 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 not always easy and i i like to always point out like you know there's no magic formula mm-hmm. it's a lot of it takes a lot of time and a lot of patience and it took us many years to establish relationships with these communities that we're working with and um and we failed a lot of times but every time something didn't work we we went back to them and said like hey this seemed like it didn't work. Like, what can we do to make it work? Or what do you think? Like, what are your ideas about improving this? So I think that's another important thing. I have a lot of people that contact me. For example, um, you know, I mentioned a little earlier, we have this women's organization in Lava Vulu that are are essentially growing vegetables in the desert, which is crazy. Um, But people contact me and say like, what seeds are you using? Like, what's the secret formula? And I just say to them, like, there, there is no secret formula. There was a lot of failure. And I truly believe the, the gardens only became a success because these women who are not necessarily valued in their, in their community, we had these leadership workshops with them and we started this girls with no shoes club empowering the the girls and we did um hygiene programs and talked to them about um believing in themselves and we shared the story of walt disney like he was originally like this this poor boy who carried papers on a paper route and then eventually because he never gave up and he just kept trying no matter what he became very successful only because he believed in his dreams and never quit. And so I think all those things combined just created this self-esteem for these women. And that's why their garden succeeded because they they still used the same tools that we gave them the first time, but maybe the first time and the second time and the third time, they didn't really believe in themselves. And when they finally did, and made the garden their own that's when it it succeeded mm-hmm. it's a great thing because i i think what inspired me to get into conservation was seeing people that i admired doing it and seeing their journeys and seeing and hearing these stories so hearing a story about someone yes. 
who wouldn't give up and would keep going and keep going is something that yes is something that obviously of course it would inspire everybody um <laughs> and it's yes it, it created characters that i think we all love and will all love forever and ever so uh, <laughs> it's uh, the perfect example um mm-hmm. especially uh, and it's good to know it's not just dealing with kids it also inspires the the older members of the community yes. as well uh, <laughs> justifies my own love of Disney um, so that's that good that's yeah what, uh, <laughs> absolutely absolutely uh, but yes that's that's fantastic and I wondered if you were to kind of looking kind of back on everything that you've done and all of these projects and all these amazing things is there one that that jumps out in your head now looking back that is kind of the most satisfying moment for you you personally or the most the achievement to you that stands out most in your mind is something you're exceptionally proud of and um, what would that be for you? Um, I mean, there's quite a few, but if I if I single that one, I would say um, our work in Lava Vulu, which kind of is centered around a community that lives near the the critically endangered radiated tortoises. So that's why we we began working there. I mentioned it a little bit before when we first arrived there. The the kids said, "Wow, we really wish we had a school to go to." And I met with the village elder, um, the Nauda, and he said hey, we, we're really smart people, um, all of us leaders here in the village, and we really believe that we could do something for our country of Madagascar. However, we never had a chance because we don't know how to read and write. And that really limited what we could do. And so they said it was like their dream that their children or grandchildren could attend school. So we were able to, it took many years many years um but we did build a school there and we called it the dream school they 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 came up with the name it's called the dream school um and we started out with 75 students and our our main thing was that we didn't want to just build a, a building like a shell we wanted to have a trained teacher and we wanted the parents to be involved and we wanted to create this school as a foundation for conservation and education in the region so eventually more and more kids started coming more parents are sending their kids to school we had seven teachers and about 175 kids and on their own, the, the people of Lava Valuk came to us again and said, we, we were ready for, we need to build another school to accommodate all these kids. And so one of the things that we kind of stumbled upon, but my, probably is one of my proudest things, is our scholarship program. So we found that there were some kids that grew up with us that we would see every time we went back to the village. And they were like sneaking into the back of the classroom and some of the girls even had their own babies already their own children and but they wanted to be in on on the conservation fusion lessons and so we said like are you guys in school and they said no because the dream schools only goes up to to the grade school level and you know our parents can't afford to send us to secondary school. And so we started a scholarship program. First, we started a, a girls empowerment club called, and they they came up with the name themselves. They called it the Girls With No Shoes Club. And when they started that club, it did the same thing. Like it created this safe space for them to, to help, help them express the things that they needed. So they said like they'd really love to attend school, they really would love to become midwives and teachers and come back to their village and help out. So 
that spearheaded the scholarship program. So now we have multiple scholarship programs at multiple sites. And for the first time ever, um, we had students from the Dream School for one that um, passed, qualified for and passed the national exam for the past three years in a row. Um, we have more students every year and now we offer the scholarship program and the closest school that they can go to is about six hours away. Um, but they, we help help them with a host family, room and board, their school fees. We got them a tutor, and it has really changed the dynamics of of the entire village. Like it's changed all their lives for the better, and they have gained something that can never be taken away, which is which is an education. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of my favorite things. So we have two dream schools now. And it actually is one of the last strongholds of the, the radiated tortoise in the wild. You can find the radiated tortoises all around because even before we arrived, um, the people of Lavavulu have always had a, a special place in their culture and local traditions that protected the radiated tortoises. So they, they've they been protecting radiated tortoises for centuries because they think of them as a special icon and so it was a great place to really build upon that and create these tangible benefits for this community, which even increases their desire to protect these tortoises on the brink of extinction even more. That's amazing. And it's I can see why it would be so satisfying, because it's not just helping an individual or a single thing. It's creating these ripple effects that will go on for generations of helping a community with the kind of yeah, with the ed education aspect. And not only are they benefiting from personal education, they're going away and doing careers, like you said, like becoming a midwife that are then going to benefit the community. It's, it's yeah, so inspirational. And I think your your answer also brought in something that I wanted to ask you about, which was your, your work with the radiated tortoises. Um, mm -hmm. Because I think something I wanted to do, because you are, um, your, your job is inspiring these, <laughs> these uh, communities and people across the world to kind of, fall in love with these these amazing species. I wanted to ask you about a couple of the species that sure. you work with. And if we start with the radiated tortoises, a listener might kind of look at a tortoise and think they might not be able to tell, make them kind of distinct in their heads. They just kind of think of this one generic tortoise. Sure. But what is in, what's particularly interesting or what, what do you usually tell people about the radiated tortoise to make them kind of fall in love with this particular species? Well, um, the first thing I like to share is like the radiated tortoise has got its, got its name because of the, the pattern on its shell. So mm -hmm. each of the little scoots or sections of its shell um, looks like a sunburst. And mm -hmm. so it like the rays of the sun, the radiated tortoise, that's how it got its name. It used to, there used to be thousands of them. In fact, I know some folks who are working on conservation in Madagascar that have been working with turtles and tortoises that said when they would drive through the south of Madagascar, they would have to stop their car so that they wouldn't run over all of these tortoises crossing the road. And today there are very, very few tortoises left in the wild. And they're, they're on the brink of extinction due to being harvested Previously, the culture kind of protected them. For example, the people in Lavavulu never touch the tortoises because they're sacred. And so they don't even touch them. Um, it's like a bad omen to do so. So they protect them. However, there could be like a neighboring village 
and the 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 people in Lava Balloon never eat the tortoises. However, some some cultures in south southern Madagascar actually harvest the tortoises um, for important holidays like Christmas and Easter. And they'll, they're easy to catch because they can just find them in the forest and then they can hold them up in like a cave or something and then they can use the meat for these special occasions. Another and probably the main reason that they're going extinct is because of the the pet trade. So on the black market, these radiated tortoises, which actually are illegal to have as pets because they're endangered species, can can sell for ten thousand U.S. dollars. So imagine these local people are making less than two dollars a day if they have a job, mm-hmm. and then they're offered any amount of money f- for gathering these animals from the wild when their family has no food. You know, it's easy to see like how that how that can happen. And so the illegal pet trade is one of the main threats to these endangered tortoises. They are a really unique tortoise. They they have like a dome-shaped shell um, with that radiated pattern on it. And they're, they kind of can get to the size of like a bowling ball mm-hmm. um, or a little bit bigger. And in the local word for them in Madagascar is sukake. So when we first started working in Lavavulu and some of the neighboring villages... As we mentioned, it's a very isolated area. Um, It takes a long time to get there and it's not easy to get there and they don't have a lot of through traffic. So the local people had no idea that this was the only place that they could find these tortoises. Although they considered them sacred, they they had they thought like the whole world was just filled with radiated tortoises (laughs) just like them. So um, for them to kind you know, that was part of our education program in the beginning. Like you have something special here it's yours and it's up to you to kind of protect it. And so that was one of the things that was kind of eye-opening to me as well. Like they had, that they had no idea that the whole world didn't look like their own backyard. So um, that was kind of interesting. And like I said, Lava Vulu is one of the last strongholds of the, the radiated tortoise. So right where our, the dream school is and the MVP team has like a a research project going there with the local community as well on a permanent basis. So they support Malagasy graduate students doing research on the tortoises and the local lemurs. And that also provides income to the people living there. And they have a they have a reforestation program there as well. And it's just instead of planting forest trees, they're planting cactus species because that's what the forest looks like it's a dry spiny forest um so all of those things again provide tangible benefits to local community based on conservation mm-hmm. that's that's it's absolutely fascinating and it's a, a species yes that i think a lot of people maybe take for granted tortoises they assume kind of oh they're yeah they're one tortoise how different can it be from one another and how but they are they're all different they're all special they're all unique and they're all found in these yeah unique interesting places and have these unique stories and forming Mm -hmm. a connection with the the local community about them and then also it because it makes sense if the if somebody is offering you uh any amount of money for something that you can go out and easily capture of course you would if your family Mm -hmm. needs that money so it's it's good that Yes, you're not only helping them find other forms of employment, so they don't need to do that, but you're also increasing the 
the kind of love and appreciation for that species is is really mm -hmm. interesting. Uh, so yes, I guess the next thing, the next species that I I wanted to ask you a little bit about, I suppose a lot of people I think think they know all about ring-tailed lemurs because they are perhaps the most famous species of lemur. But I wondered if you could tell the listeners maybe a little bit about your work with them and sure. and yes, what would you <laughs> what would you tell them that they they might find shocking or wouldn't know about the ring-tailed lemur? Yeah, it, it definitely is an iconic species in Madagascar. You know, I guess the ring, maybe people don't know that the ring-tailed lemurs, at least the ones that we were that live around the, the village of Lavavulu, they live in caves. So um, we actually take those kids also on conservation camp, and we just walk to a nearby cave, and the lemurs are all like sleeping up in the crevices, and there are actually. Um, because it's a cave, there's like an underground pool in there that the lemurs drink from, and they have the those blind. There are blind fish that live in there, so that's kind of neat seeing that. Um, the ring-tailed lemurs also um, use their they use their scent glands um, to ma to make these stink fights, which maybe people already know, um, but that's another unique thing about the ring-tailed lemurs. That's amazing. And I, I asked the question in a way that was very, people might not know this. And then you've told me mm -hmm. things that I didn't know these things. That's amazing. Like, the image of them all in a cave kind of is is kind of, yes, I, I mean, it, it makes sense, I suppose, it's somewhere to live and to hide from predators or keep themselves safe. But yeah, that's yeah, a, and it's actually very hot there as well. So the cave is a cool place. And that makes perfect sense. It's really, really interesting, actually. And I guess Finally, the final species that I was going to ask you about was, I always mess up the pronunciation of Sifakas. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard it yeah. pronounced so many different ways, so I don't think you can go wrong. Um, I always say Sifakas. Mm -hmm. However, some people call them Shafak, which is how they, in fact, got their name because they, they make a sound that's kind of like Shafak, Shafak. And it's just like a... I don't know it's kind of like a spitting sound or whatever they that is how they got their name um there's many species of safakas that a lot of people don't know about so probably the most popular is the um the cockerel safaka which is on a children's show called zabumafu here in the u.s and so lots of people know that species of safaka but there's also um the Pereira safaka which is a completely black Sapaka um, that's found up north only in one small region. Um, there is the the Tattersall Sapaka, the Coronatus. There, there, I believe there are eight species of Sapakas. So, um, you know, that's what I love about lemurs is that they come in all shapes of sizes. So the very smallest is the mouse lemur, which is the size of like smaller than almost smaller than a hamster with a tail and a, a baby mouse lemur is probably not much bigger than a a marble a large marble mm -hmm. so they go range from all the way from that size to the injury which is a uh, in the safaka family and the injury is about the size of a kindergartner it's giant <laughs> so i that's what i love about lemurs there's so many different types of lemurs some are nocturnal some are, are diurnal, some are up in the day and the night. And that's what allows all of these different species of endangered lemurs to live in that 
small percentage of the intact forest that still remains in Madagascar because they all have different niches. So safakas and ringtail lemurs and leppy lemurs and sportive lemurs and mouse lemurs can all live in the same forest mm -hmm. because, you know, one eats plants, one eats insects, uh, one eats fruit. So they're not competing and they can kind of all live together. Mm -hmm. they have yeah. different, like food niches and habitat niches mm -hmm. that's amazing and it makes I, I guess it makes sense that they would all grow to to fill the gaps that the other ones don't quite mm -hmm. it's it's really interesting and i that's yes. the thing that i think i've had the most fun when i've been preparing and kind of writing the questions and looking for this make, looking doing research for the series is looking at pictures of lemurs i, I think everywhere you look they, <laughs> they all look at different they all look slightly different they all do just slightly different things they all are slightly different sizes and i would recommend to anybody listening if you go beyond i think immediately if you say lemurs people picture maybe the ii and the ring-tailed lemur and kind of these famous ones that they may be seen in a zoo once or they've seen in a documentary but there are so many out there yes. Just mm -hmm. go and have, eat, just Google or p look at any, I don't know, find a book about Madagascar and flick through the pages because there's yeah. so many diverse, bizarre, but fascinating and wonderful species there. Yep. Uh, so yes, thank you so much for, for telling us all about them. I guess my my final couple questions for you, we're on to my, my final couple questions for you. The mm -hmm. first of which is, of course, we've told people about these wonderful things and we have probably got a lot of people interested in your work and the different species that that um, you're kind of helping to to protect and the people that you're <laughs> helping to kind of empower and give these skills to. It's all sorts of things that might inspire someone to want to act. And I wondered mm -hmm. if someone's sitting in their home anywhere in the world, not necessarily in Madagascar or the US or where you're working, what can they be doing now to kind of help? Yeah, help with the conservation efforts mm -hmm. that, that you're kind of working on. Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I love that because I always tell people like, hey, we don't all have to hop on a plane and get to Madagascar to make a difference. There are so many things that we can do right in our own backyards that help conservation and help endangered lemurs and biodiversity in Madagascar. So some of the things I, I like to start off with is, of course, like education, like we just talked about, you know, learn about lemurs learn about some of the conservation organizations that are doing things and you know sh just share what you learned tell you know try to tell three people about what you learned about lemurs or what a difference lemurs make and then there are so many things that we can do on a on a small level for example you can compost i try to think I try to like walk the walk not just talk the talk so some of the things i do are you know i compost and, and um, I recycle. So I hardly have any trash, so we're not contributing to the landfill. Every time I get a chance to reuse something, I do. Um, so just think about, instead of grabbing a plastic water bottle every time, or just get a, a reusable water bottle, imagine if everyone just stopped using plastic water bottles, what a difference we could make. Um, imagine even in your own neighborhood, if people composted, um, it would help improve their soil and it would keep things out of the landfill. Um, 
it creates all these microorganisms in your yard. Um, you can also just reuse things. Um, for example, instead of just always buying your clothes new, you can you can go to a thrift shop and you can do the same thing for your furniture. And maybe if you need something, instead of going out and buying it, you can borrow it from someone. So I think there are a lot of things that we can do in our daily lives that seem like they're insignificant or don't make a difference, but if everyone did them, it would add up to be a really huge difference. You know, one example is just bring your own bags to the grocery store um, instead of using plastic or paper bags and just keep reusing them. It would keep a lot of plastic out of the landfill. So all those things are just small things that we can do. And of course, like because we're all about education, it's also about doing those things and then share those ideas with other people and 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 let's talk about how we can make our small actions can make a big difference together. Mm -hmm. It's that's yeah, the the perfect answer because it goes it's not it goes beyond just helping lemurs or Madagascar because mm -hmm. if you enjoy looking at the birds in your back garden and you keep a healthier garden by composting and helping the plants grow, then that will help those species if you remove if you kind of use recyclable or if you use a kind of reusable bottle that will help if you love whales or dolphins or something that lives in the ocean sure. that can help it. so it's such good universal advice that everybody can do and everyone can do a little bit of and especially the one with thrift shopping really spoke to me I don't know what whenever I buy clothes that are brand spanking new and kind of uh, shiny and I think look really great never get compliments whenever I get something from a thrift shop everyone <laughs> how cool is that I want yeah. one of those. <laughs> very unique. I mean, it's very unique. And I have a, a friend that works in conservation and she repurposes things. So like she'll buy stuff at the thrift store and then she's an artist. So she'll add her own touches to everything. So it's just a chance to also kind of be unique and creative. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, it's and yeah, I think great, great advice all around. Um, I guess that's kind of the advice for if people want to to kind of make these changes. But if they want to specifically, if they want to follow your work and they want to kind of support you, what websites or social media or where would you point them to come and, uh, yes, follow you directly? Yeah, we are really good about um, keeping up on our Facebook page and our Instagram. Mm -hmm. So those are two places you can follow us. We're kind of working, we're working now on revamping our website. It's a little bit old, but you can still... Um, reach us on our website and and that is actually you know um, how can people support our work of course like we can always use donations and we're really good about tell you know sharing with folks like where their donations went um, that's really important to us to be very transparent about where the dollars go and um, so people can support our work by by donating through um, we have a platform called network for good um, it, it gives you a receipt and it, it helps us keep in touch with you to so we can share back with you um, how we used your donation. And then um, please just follow us on our social media channels, which is Instagram, Facebook, and we have a, a Twitter account too. Perfect. I will make sure to follow. I, I'm pretty sure I was checking before we got on the call today. I was on Instagram making sure I was already following you because I didn't want to. I don't <laughs> like to point everyone in those directions if I'm not doing it myself. So I have, sure. yes, shuffle people. I will continue to shuffle people that way as well and put the links to all of those things in the description for the episode so people can just easily click across 
and and find any of the resources we've talked about today they should be e easy to find and yes the website i think is still very very good because it's how where i found all of my information for the questions oh, today so uh, it's perfect well that kind of brings me to the the end of my questions so i guess uh one of the last things to say is just a, a massive thank you um susie thank you so much for your time and for your insights into everything it's been incredibly interesting for me i feel like i've learned a lot so hopefully the listeners will also good. feel like they've uh, they've gained something as well so thank you so so much yeah, thank you again for putting everything together. And yeah, from our whole team, I always tell people it's not just me, it's a, it's really a team effort. Um, we have such a great team at Conservation Fusion. We have um, Lelena, our field assistant, our, our field manager, Innocent, um, who's our field manager in Kinjibatu, and then our office manager Lana in Madagascar, and we couldn't do without them. Um, they're the ones that that are doing a lot of the social media posts and updates and, you know, keeping things going. So um, it's definitely a team effort. And, and thank you so much for all of your interest in conservation and putting together this podcast for uh, World Lemur Day. Yes, thank you very, very much. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, and I feel like, yes, I'm getting a free education in lemur conservation, so I can't complain. <laughs> it's the best thing for me. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. You're so welcome. Thanks for having me. Perfect. And welcome back. Thank you so, 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 so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation and you enjoyed learning about conservation fusion and more about education in Madagascar and in the US, um, as well as the Disney Conservation Fund and the tortoises and yeah, another great, I think, all round episode. There's, you have, even if you're not interested in one of the little individual elements, there are so many elements to Madagascar that we've covered and cover in every episode. You're bound to find one you like. So, yes, I, I really hope you've all found something that really engaged and excited you. For me, I think my personal favourites, I really love the tortoises. I have gone away since we recorded that interview and done a lot of googling of images of very, very cute tortoises and I recommend you do the same. And also it was in interesting to learn more about kind of, yes, how we can work across the world in completely different places and still build these important educational br bridges, build the important links and kind of support one another. It's really, really interesting and inspiring. And I hope that it inspires you to kind of think about the way that you act and think about the things that you do and yeah, make some little differences that, that can make, of course, a big, big, big difference to some people. Um, yeah. Now, before I go on a TED talk and a really inspirational kind of uh, ramble, I suppose, I say that it would probably just be more of a ramble than an inspirational ramble. Uh, I should probably wrap up the show. Now, as I said at the beginning, this is the penultimate episode of the series, so not much to tease left. But our next episode coming out on Friday will, of course, release on World Lemur Day. The whole series has been a celebration of lemurs, so this last episode is just uh, a bit of a recap, some good advice, some new content from Lucia, who we talked to in episode one, and it's just, it's a lovely cap to celebrate the fantastic lemurs, the animals that of course inspired this series 
in the first place and yeah I really hope you look forward to that. Of course while you're waiting you can investigate more about Conservation Fusion and their work. I'll put the links to everything they do in the description of this episode and I'll also of course put links to our social media in the description so if you're interested in that as well you can follow us at Pangolin Podcast on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook and yes of course you can follow us on your podcast streaming platform of choice as well um, so yeah make sure and do that we're on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everything else so you don't want to miss out <laughs> yes that brings us to the end of today's episode so thank you so much everyone thank you Susie thank you everyone for listening thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you um, and yes of course thank you most of all for joining us as we have explored the land of the lemurs thank you bye bye <laughs>